Good morning again. Would you pray with me as we open up God's Word? Father, we simply come as your people to hear from you, to submit to what you have to say to us. Father, to, to see you in this text. Lord, would you use me to proclaim what's true? Would you use this time to draw our hearts to Jesus? Thank you for your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today marks the beginning of Holy Week, as I said earlier in the service. Every year we gather together at this time to remember the entrance of the King of Kings into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And like those people who, who lined those streets uh, entering into the city on that day some 2,000 years ago, we recognize that the entry of Jesus on the back of a, of a donkey was symbolic of his rightful coronation as king. We know that because it, it follows in the example of, of King Solomon, and it is in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which reads this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. And of course, that's what happened that morning as Jesus entered into the city riding on the back of a colt of a donkey. Now, we also know something, though, that those first observers on that day did not know, that King Jesus was coming into the city to inaugurate his kingdom, the kingdom of God, not on a throne, as they thought, but on the cross and when we look at Holy Week and we, we look back and we see the accounts of Scripture, we see that, that the whole week is really bookended by these two responses to the arrival of the King of Kings. There's two responses there. The, the, the first one is, is marked by true worship of Christ, and that occurs on Palm Sunday. It's the second one that happens on Good Friday that's marked by his rejection and by the way, there's a, there's a common misconception out there that it was the same group of people on both days. You know, they were, they were welcoming him in with praise on, on Sunday and then turning around and screaming out, crucify him on Friday. And I don't, I don't think that's, that's actually correct. I think there's two groups of people. I think those who were there on Sunday were those who did recognize that this was the fulfillment of Psalm 24 and this was the fulfillment of Zechariah 9. And it was those on Friday who were unwilling to recognize that, who cried out for the crucifixion of Christ. But with that said, these two different responses of, you know, to Jesus on Holy Week provide us all with contrasting pictures of worship. Again, you've got this one kind that's, that's evidenced by the, the palm-waving, adoring crowd that's pleasing to God. And then you've got this other response that was given by the religious leaders of the day and the so-called people of God in Jerusalem who, though they've, they, they, they had all the religious appearances on the outside, Jesus would say on the inside, you're like whitewashed tombs. 
And it was those who, though they thought they were doing the will of God, displeased God by rejecting and killing his son. So every year we come to Palm Sunday and it gives us an opportunity to evaluate our own hearts, to evaluate our own worship. Are we, as as we gather together, offering a sacrifice of praise that's pleasing to God? Now I say that recognizing that there's something unique about this year. We're not gathered together, are we? This coronavirus has got us in quarantine. We're all sitting at home this morning. We're not together with the people of God. We are, as it were, experiencing a temporary exile. And that's, that's unique. I think the fact that, that we are experiencing this exile makes our time of studying the Old Testament prophecy of Micah especially relevant. It's something I think we can enter into in a way that we haven't maybe been able to do before. Not just relevant, but particularly poignant. The people of Jerusalem, whom he was writing to, this is in the, the 7th century B.C., they, they were facing exile. And the reason they were facing exile is because they had forgotten the nature of true worship. Even though they, they, they went to the temple and they offered their sacrifices and their praises to God regularly, they'd forgotten what the Lord had really required of them. And this exile, this judgment of God on them, would be God's way of correcting them and changing them. So Micah chapter 6, as we read it today, also confronts us with really the same question whether our worship is pleasing to God or not. When we gather together on a Sunday and and we do the things that that we do, we we have to wonder, and I do wonder, is there something wrong with our form of worship here in the 21st century, in the American church? Is there something wrong? And if so, will this present experience of exile serve as a corrector? Will it serve to change us? So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Micah chapter 6. And uh, we've looked at, uh, you know, the first five chapters over the last several weeks. You might recall that back in chapter 1, Micah employs this sort of courtroom scene. He invites us into this holy courtroom to hear the indictment of God. And here he returns to that same kind of 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 illustration verse one he says hear what the lord says arise plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice hear you mountains the indictment of the lord and you enduring foundations of the earth for the lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with israel so God is saying, come and I, I want you to hear this, the charges that I have against my people. And we don't actually see that indictment laid out here in chapter 6. That already occurred back in Micah chapter 2 and chapter 3. Remember when this was written, it didn't have chapter division. So they already heard this indictment. Do you remember what it was? The indictment was this, that the people had abandoned true worship of God by placing their trust in idols. They had rejected God 
and they had said, no, we're going to look to the, the, the things of the world around us. The, we're going to look to the same kinds of things that the, that the pagans around us are looking to to sustain them. And they were adopting those, those practices, namely in, in sexual sin and in materialistic greed. And as a result of that idolatry, that's an important emphasis, as a result of that idolatry, their materialistic greed, their selfish tendency, they were oppressing the poor and the vulnerable in their midst. That was the direct result of their, their flawed worship. They were just looking out for themselves. And that created a, a massive socioeconomic divide, a, a massive inequality in Israel such that the poor were pinned into poverty you remember there's a, there's a statement there in the early chapters of Micah where, where God is, is judging those who are, who are well off, who are guilty of this kind of oppression. And the, and the picture he gives is, you put your foot on their necks. They can't escape from this. This created a, an environment that, that lacked neighbor love particularly within the upper echelons of Jerusalem society. And God says that's directly related. That's directly linked to your improper worship. Now, I want us to, to note this, and th this is important. It didn't mean that the people weren't going to church regularly, okay? They, they were still Jews. They were dutifully going to their temple on the Sabbath. They were still making their offerings their sacrifices, they were still singing their songs. On the surface, this was a people who had all the appearances of being faithful worshipers. On the surface. But, but God has something to say about their worship here, and it's not good. Now before he says that, he first points them back to the impetus of worship. What should lead us to right worship in the first place. And he spells that out in verses three to five. He says, oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Oh my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. What, what God is pointing them to is something that he's pointed them to over and over again and continues to point us to even throughout the New Testament. It's this, true worship is always a response to salvation. It's always a response to salvation. God initiates our salvation. He saves us from sin, and then he recreates us as worshipers. It's not the other way around. We don't gain salvation by learning to worship. We are worshiping in response to the salvation that God has so graciously given to us. And that's important because it informs the way we ought to then worship. If God has so graciously rescued us and loved us and saved us from our own oppression, oppression to sin, oppression to death, then how can we worship him properly if at the same time we're attempting to do that on the outside 
were simultaneously oppressing or enslaving other people. Or, or even if, if we're just sort of passively observing those kinds of practices, how can we be responding to God's liberating salvation if we're an oppressing people? Now, I want you to listen to what Micah says then, because that was what they were doing, about the emptiness of their worship. Verse 6. God says, with what shall I come before the Lord? I'm sorry, Micah says this. What shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall shall I get my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body? for the sin of my soul. Now, I want you to notice that there's, there's hyperbole there, right? And that hyperbole is there to make a strong point. And it sounds a lot like what God said through the prophet Amos elsewhere. Listen to Amos chapter 5. There God says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. It's empty. It's meaningless. Those are harsh words. Now, it doesn't mean that God hates church services. In fact, these, these are the, the very elements and methods of corporate worship that he has ordained for us. But it does mean this. It means these things are empty. Actually, what God would say here is these things are actually repulsive to him if they're performed merely as outward rituals, void of any true love of God, love for God. And what we're being told here and throughout Scripture, is that that neighbor love is a key evidence of a true love for God. God makes that abundantly clear in both of these two texts. He makes it clear in the Amos text when he says this. He says, but right after he says, I hate your feasts and I despise these things and I won't listen to your songs, he says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Here in Micah chapter 6, right after he, this, this hyperbole of, of what kind of offering can we bring that would be sufficient in our emptiness, verse 8 says this, Has he told you, O man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. What kind of worship is it that God is looking for? What makes our songs and our offerings and our gatherings pleasing to Him? He says it's when you do justice, when you love kindness and you walk humbly before me. What does it mean to do justice and to love kindness? You know, we think of justice, doing justice, oftentimes in terms of, uh, of, of punishing what is wrong. 
right? To give justice to, to a convicted criminal is to, is to satisfy the crime with a fitting punishment, fitting retribution, right? That's one aspect of justice, but there's, a, there's another side of the word that we, I think, often neglect. To do justice isn't just to punish what's wrong, but it's to make it right, to do justice is to bring about a sense of, of equality and fairness amongst all people. Again, it's to see something that's wrong and to actively seek to make it right. It's to see something that's oppressed, someone who's oppressed, and actively seek to restore them and to bring fairness to them and to bring health and flourishing to them. That's what it means to do justice. What does it mean to love kindness? Well, the word that is used here for kindness is the Hebrew word chesed. And it's a word that's, that's used throughout the Old Testament in Hebrew to, to convey a love that will not quit. It's a love that is committed to what's best for the object of its affection. It is a stubborn kind of love. It is a limitless kind of love. And I think it's the kind of love that, that God is pointing to when he says, this is what I've done for you. Back in verse 4, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. You were oppressed. You were pinned down. And I was committed to you. I brought you up. I sent you before Moses and Aaron and Miriam. I delivered you. I am committed to you. That is said. And so God says, love that. Not just from me giving it to you, but love it in how you would give it then to others. Do justice. Love kindness. And again, we see that's not what was happening here in Jerusalem in the 7th century. They were doing the opposite of that. And so exile, exile as, judge, as God's judgment upon them would serve to correct and change them. That was the point. God says, I'm going I'm to remove all of the, uh, all the security. I'm going to remove all of the freedom that you are enjoying, at least some of you. And I'm going to send you into exile. And when you get there, the proud will be brought low. When the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions come, the haves among you will become have-nots. The oppressors in Jerusalem will become the oppressed in Babylon. God will strip them bare, and he's doing that to expose the worthlessness of their idols. These things that you've put your trust in, this materialistic greed, this, this as we talked about last week, this self-sufficiency for your provision and your security and your control. He strips these things bare in order to lovingly lead them back to himself. To look to him as the source of their provision and their security and their justice. And we see, by the way, the fulfillment of that after the exile. Would it, would it work? Would God correct and change them? Yes. You can read about it in Nehemiah chapter 8 and chapter 9. When they come back from the exile, God restores them to be right worshipers again. This is a very relevant passage for us. 
I want to ask this question. I've I've been asking myself this question quite a bit. How might this current COVID-19 exile serve to correct and change us? Is there something wrong with the worship in a 21st century American church? And if so, how might this exile serve to correct and change us? Now listen, before I, I venture into to answering questions like that. I want to I state clearly up front, I am a pastor, not a prophet, okay? I am not a prophet. I, I don't presume to know all that God is doing in our world right now, particularly through this pandemic. I just think that it's wise for us to use this time to consider our own hearts. Jesus says, Pay attention to the things that are going on around you. Watch and pray. Consider our own hearts. Ask God for spiritual discernment. We may not know what he's doing, but there are some things that we we can confidently know. Here's some things that I do confidently know already. The first one is this. God is sovereign, and God is in control of the spread of this virus. It is God who will set the boundaries of its spread. It is God who will bring about the end of this pandemic. God is sovereign in control of it all. I know that because Scripture is replete with passages that tell us that. Psalm 115 is one. Daniel 4 is another. God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. We know that. Here's another thing I confidently know. God always uses trials for the refinement of His church. 1 Peter 1 tells us that. James chapter 1 tells us that. And here's another thing we can confidently know. Love for God. Love for God and proper worship in the New Testament, just like is being told to us here in the Old, is a response to His saving initiative. And it's still marked, it's still evidenced by love for one another. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. To love one another, he's saying, is evidence that you know God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And a little bit later, he says this, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this, he says, is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And again, we have New Testament evidence that God-glorifying worship is intrinsically tied to that kind of neighbor love. The Apostle Paul writes to us in Romans chapter 12, both in verse 1 and then a little bit later, I'll read verses 9 and 10. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. He's saying this is what's pleasing to God. And he says this, which is your spiritual Worship, this presenting of our bodies as a sacrifice is worship. And he says, then let love be genuine. 
Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, and love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Worship and neighbor love are intrinsically linked. Jesus says in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. These are things that we can confidently know. And I also know confidently that this kind of love was manifest in the worship of the early church. We see that clearly in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And, and it's here that I want us to consider what's similar and perhaps what's not similar in the worship of that early church and the modern church. Flip with me, with you will, if you will, over to Acts chapter 2. This is a very familiar passage. It's a beautiful passage, and it's a picture, again, of the, of the worship of the early church in Jerusalem. And it says this in verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And we can say that's something that, that's similar, right? We love the teaching of God's Word. We, we gather together on Sunday mornings, and we make the sermon you know, very often the very central element of that gathered worship. We live in a day and age where we can get teaching from all kinds of places. We can go to different websites and listen to different preachers, and, and we love the teaching of God's Word. And it says that they were not only devoted to the teaching, but also to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayers. And we say we love that too. We love our Sunday morning gatherings. We love the fellowship of the body. We break bread together. There, there's a picture here of communion. Maybe it's a picture of breaking bread in our homes. We say, well, okay, I'm in a, I'm in a community group. I, I do that too. We pray together. And it says, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And we can look at that and we can say, we we relate to that, right? When we gather together and we, we meet in each other's homes and we, we praise God and there's similarities there, right? That we, we can look to and say, this is what informs the way that we worship corporately today. But I skipped over a couple of verses and I skipped over them on purpose because they make us maybe a little bit more uncomfortable. It says, an awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings, and they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I know we read that in the modern church, and we, we can think maybe, wow, that's a beautiful picture of of, of Christian love. That's a beautiful picture of, of congregational care. But we might also think, and if we're honest, I think we have to think this, that sounds a little foreign to what we do. 
That makes us a little uncomfortable. I mean, it's one thing to fellowship with the body. It's one thing to, to, to meet a need here or there. I mean, I, you know, we've, maybe we've all uh, signed up for, the, for the, the meal train that, that serves the pregnant family in our church or the person who is in the hospital. But this idea, this radical idea of selling all of our possessions and pooling them together to meet every need in the body, that, that feels a little radical. That feels a little foreign. But I think it's important for us to recognize that in the picture of authentic worship, these are people who heard the words of Christ. These are people who understood the words of Paul. This is spiritual worship. There's an intrinsic link between worship and love. So what if, what if we read something like that and we say, we don't see ourselves reflected here. That doesn't feel like, that doesn't look like what we see in the 21st century American church. What if our common corporate worship, what if it isn't really worship? What if our common corporate worship isn't really pleasing to God? What if God might step into our churches and say, your songs are like noise. Your offerings are, are they're, they're, they're meaningless. I, I don't, I don't care about that. Would he look us in the eye and say, here's what I've required of you. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before your God. I'm sure that's exactly what he would say. What's changed? What, what marks 21st century American worship? I I don't want to throw everything under the, the bus here. You know, I don't want to, to convey that I think our worship is, is completely hideous, but I, I do think it's worth challenging us here. Is it possible that our worship has become less corporate and far more individualistic? In other words, do I come to church on a Sunday morning thinking, how can I serve and love others, or am I coming primarily thinking, what can I get out of this? How does my love for the teaching sort of stop with myself? Does it terminate on myself and how it can sort of fix my own heart or prepare me for my own week? Are we singing songs because we just want to sort of have private moments of, of engagement with the lyrics rather than corporately praising God and edifying and building up the body? So what if... What if one of the outcomes of this COVID-19 quarantine is to sort of expose our individualism as being worthless? What if weeks on end of, of being stuck at home and not being able to gather together with other people is, is going to be used by God to show us that individualism is not what we were made for? That individualism isn't satisfying. That coming to, to just get things for myself is, is far from worship. What if the Lord is challenging our, individual, our individualistic bent and bringing it to an end by starving us of community? Look at the way this pandemic has changed us. And I want to say this in, in positive terms already. I mean, we're, we're several weeks into this. I've noticed this, have you? How we're, how we're going above and beyond our normal routines to 
to reach out to one another, to call one another, to video conference with one another, to pray for one another, to let our requests be made known and share those burdens. Look how we're going above and beyond right now to make sure that we're able to meet the financial needs of those who've lost their jobs, those who've had their hours cut back, those who, who maybe because they're already sick can't go into work and are in self-quarantine. And we're saying, how can we meet those needs together? Look at how it's already beginning to change us. What if those things were to become permanent? What if by the end of all of this, we have our own Nehemiah 8 moment where we say, you know, God corrected some things in us. God showed us something different. And, and those, are, those are imprints that need to stay. We've learned something about worship. We've learned something about love for God and love for others that maybe we were, we were sort of blind to before. What if that's what God has in store, at least partly in this pandemic? And let me ask this question. Isn't that what the gospel intends? Isn't that really what Holy Week points us to? That kind of love for our brethren? Isn't that what Jesus did? You know, Isaiah's, uh, excuse me, Israel's sin of, of, of idolatry and their empty worship was similarly exposed by Isaiah. Isaiah was a contemporary, again, of Micah, writing at the same time, writing to the same group of people. And in chapter 51 and 52 of Isaiah's prophecy, he again announces this judgment of God of exile for the people. But here's the thing that's interesting. Where does it lead? Where does the pronouncement of judgment in chapters 51 and 52 lead? It leads to the picture of his people's salvation in the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. Let me read some of that well-known and beautiful uh, wording to you. Isaiah 53 verses 4 to 6. Surely he, the suffering servant, has borne our griefs and carried our, sor our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what Holy Week points us to. The fulfillment of that text. Jesus loved us. He walked among us. He revealed the Father to us. He healed our sicknesses. He bore our diseases. He cast out our demons. He forgave our sins. He loved His people. And by the end of Holy Week, He saves us. The suffering servant is called the suffering servant because he went to the cross and suffered the judgment of God for our sin. He took it upon himself. That's what his death represents. Justice. God doing justice in Christ, on Christ, punishing sin 
so that by Christ's sacrifice and his substitutionary atonement for us, he might do justice to us, liberate the oppressed. He served us. It's during Holy Week that that this King of Kings, this King of Glory, the Lord Himself gets on His knees and humbly washes the feet of His disciples. He's teaching them something about worship. He's teaching them something about true love, love for God and love for others. And He says this in John 13, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have had have done to you. So church, how will the quarantine change us? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that in your word we have the words of life. We thank you that in your word you point us to Jesus Christ, who is the author of life, the giver of life. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that that our sin was put to death once and for all by his sacrifice for us. As we think forward to the end of this week and we, we prepare to come back on Easter Sunday, we thank you for the resurrection where Jesus overcomes and conquers sin by rising again, by by taking death and saying, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Lord, as we've placed our faith in this Christ to be the one who saves us from our sin, would you help us, Lord, to to respond to your your initiation of our salvation, your initiative to, to, to bring us up out of our oppression and teach us what it means to worship you then rightly as people who love you and love others. Lord, may our singing, may our our time of fellowship and breaking of bread, may all of that be pleasing unto you. Not because it's an outward ritual that we perform dutifully on a Sunday morning, but because it's evidence, it's, it's, it's born out of lives that are spiritual offerings to you. And loving one another is an evidence. Well, we don't know what you're doing in this moment. We don't know why you've allowed this pandemic. But we do trust that you'll give us discernment. And we do believe, Lord, that there are things in us that you want to change. So make us faithful to listen to you, to respond to you, faith and obedience to the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior in whose name we pray. Amen.